Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear from leading thinkers from our university and around the world. If you would like to hear more from our experts, why not attend Raising the Bar 2017, which will see some of our academics give 20 talks in 10 bars across Sydney, all on one night, Wednesday the 25th of October. To register for your free ticket, head to raisingthebarsydney.com.au. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for being here. My name is Lucia Sorbera, and I'm acting chair of the Department of Arabic Language and Cultures at the University of Sydney, which is co-hosting this event with Sydney Ideas. I'm delighted to welcome in Professor Mark Levine, Dr. Lana Tatur, and Anthony Lowenstein, and you all to this public event, uh, Year 51, Palestine and Israel Alternative Futures. I would like to thank Sydney Ideas for co-hosting this lecture, and the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences for supporting the project Modernities Around the World, which I co-convene with Associate Professor Rebecca Suter from the Department of Japanese Studies, and which made possible to invite Professor Mark Levine tonight. Um, before we begin, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Ora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning, and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Those who participated in previous events, co-hosted by the Department of Arabic Language and Cultures, are familiar with our commitment to public outreach. Over the years, the department has integrated his teaching and research activities with an intense work to bring to Sydney inspiring speakers from the Arab world, Europe, and the United States, and engaging in thought-provoking conversations with academics from the University of Sydney, with Australian journalists, and with the Arab community's cultural operators based in Australia offering an up-to-date, nuanced, and informed perspectives on the complex political processes that are taking place in the Arab world today. In times when the Arab world tends to be represented predominantly as a theater of crisis, terrorism, and war, our guests shed light on its underrepresented expressions, more specifically, the creativity and the resilience of the Arab civil society a civil society that faces multiple levels of violence. The violence exercised by the authoritarian regimes, the violence exercised by terrorism, by foreign military occupation, and neoliberal economies exploitation. And last but not least, the epistemological violence that is inherent in ignoring its strenuous work to promote international peace and social justice. The aim of these public lectures uh, and are to shed lights on the intersection be between the artistic and the social political spheres, enlightening the pivotal role of the Arab civil society today. Our approach of the contemporary cultural and political dynamics challenges hegemonic and simplistic narratives, and it is grounded in historical analysis. 
We believe that in conversation with these voices, we can address the global challenges that are a common concern to all of us. For these reasons, we are particularly pleased to welcome in tonight Professor Mark Levine, a leading scholar of the modern Middle East and Islam, globalization, and popular cultures, and an award-winning musician who has performed with many world-renowned artists in conversation with Dr. Lana Tatur and uh, Anthony Lowenstein. I've been thinking of hosting a public lecture on Palestine and Israel for a long time, and I could have never desired a better combination of speakers to engage in an informed and critical discussion. Lana Tatur is a fellow at the Australian Human Rights Centre at the University of New South Wales, and the sessional lecture, lecture at the University of New South Wales School of Social Sciences. She has recently completed a PhD from Warwick University, and her research focuses on the reconceptualization of domination and resistance of Palestinians in Israel, and dealing with questions of decolonization along race, ethnicity, gender, and sexuality. She recently contributed to a themed issue on legitimacy of the, global, of the journal Global Discourse with a thought-provoking intervention titled The Israeli Left, Part of the Problem or the Solution. In some, Lana Tatur is at the forefront of a new generation of transnational feminist Middle East Studies scholars, and we are very lucky to have her in Sydney. Anthony Lowenstein, is, I think, one of the first persons I met when uh, I moved to Sydney, and he's one of the most internationally interesting voices in independent and free journalism. He has written for a number of international media, and he's a contributor to The Guardian, among many other uh, media. Uh, he contributed a number of books uh, and uh, wrote uh, on the Israeli-Palestine conflict. Uh, um, his first book, uh, my Israel Question was released by Melbourne University Press in 2006. He contributed to a time to speak out on Israel, Zionism, and the Jewish identity. He wrote The Blogging Revolution on the Internet in Repressive Regimes, which was released in 2008. And his most recent book, major book is titled Disaster Capitalism, Making a Killing Out of Catastrophe, uh, which is now also turning into a documentary. Mark Levine has spent more than 20 years living, researching, reporting uh, from and performing in North Africa and the Middle East. His research has light on the deep history of contemporary problems, challenging common assumptions about the Arab world. A prolific scholar, he combines his research and academic work with journalism, transcultural artistic productions, and as a musician, filmmaker, and creative writers and activism for human rights across the Arab region. The list of his edited volumes and journal articles is embarrassing. I only mention his monographs, Overthrowing Geography, Jaffa, Tel Aviv, and the Struggle of Palestine, which we discussed today in a research seminar in the School of Languages and Cultures, uh, Why They Don't Hate Us, Lifting the Veil on the, Af on, on the Axis of Evil, and uh, Heavy Metal Islam, Rock Resistance and the Soul of Islam, which is uh, one of the favorite of my undergraduate 
students. Uh, his scholarship, activism, and music uh, are all tied to his commitment to struggle for social justice in the United States and around the world through the practice of culture jamming, which brings together leading artists, scholars, and activists in critical dialogue and performance on issues of concerns to young people. Please join me welcoming Mark Levine. Thank you, Lucia. Um, I, I want to start off by thanking Lucia and, and uh, Sydney University, the University of Sydney, for inviting me. It's been a very long time in wanting to be in Australia, and I think it's uh, somehow quite telling that on uh, the combination of the Jewish and Muslim New Year, you have an American speaking in Australia about Israel-Palestine, uh, given that they are three of the sort of paradigmatic settler colonial movements that have succeeded, uh, we can all learn a lot from thinking about it. And, and it's, it's interesting that Lucia began by mentioning and giving thanks and recognition to the Aboriginal peoples on whose land this university is, uh, a place I spent much of my research when I was living in Israel. Um, in the 90s was Tel Aviv University, which is built on the ancestral home of the village of Sheikh Moanis, which was a village in the Jaffa region uh, before Tel Aviv was established and ultimately was taken over. Uh, the university where I teach, uh, University of California, Irvine, was built essentially on land that in the not too distant past belonged to Native Americans. And whenever I begin a lecture, because people get very passionate about Palestine, Israel, um, I, I like to remind people that, you know, when we are in the U.S., we, we are basically just a more successful settler colonial movement, so successful that if I, when I ask people, do you even know on whose land you're, you're studying right now, no one really knows, unless they go to casinos. If they go to local casinos, then they have an idea of which Indian tribe uh, is, is running, or used to be running the place around, around where we live. So the resonances between Israel-Palestine, Australia, and, and the United States and the histories are, um, are really so great I could spend an hour just thinking through those. And I would invite everyone to think about that because one of the things I think we get confused about is, is really thinking that somehow Israel-Palestine, Palestine-Israel, Palestine-Eretz-Israel, uh, I don't, you know, whatever you want to call it, that it's somehow very unique historically. And certainly as a historian, I believe there is a lot that is unique about that location, just like there's a lot unique about what transpired in Australia, what transpired in the US. But it's also part of a larger process, a part of a larger process of global modernity, uh, which is inseparable from colonialism, from the rise of capitalism, from the rise of nation states, all of which have their own kinds of violence which have intersected uh, over centuries that involve uh, gendered violence, that involve violence having to do with uh, nationality, with ethnicity, with religion. Uh, violence that has often been co-opted or forgotten about when the victory has been more complete as, as has happened in the United States. I don't really know exactly uh, in Australia how complete the victory is, although I know uh, it's been fairly complete compared to many places. 
And what we have in Israel-Palestine, the thing that makes it so interesting is that it's the stronger side is not strong enough to just end it in the way these, these historical conflicts tend to end. And the weaker side is not weak enough to just disappear and go away. So what actually makes uh, Palestine-Israel so interesting is that y it keeps going. Right? It keeps going like a very dysfunctional marriage in a way. And, and I use that term because for a long time the discourse was divorce, right? Yitzhak Rabin uh, got elected in part in 1992-93 when he, he became prime minister because he was saying we need to divorce the Palestinians. And somehow that divorce never really took on because uh, the side that wanted to initiate the divorce in fact really didn't want to initiate a divorce. They just wanted to have an even stronger position in this uh, arranged or misarranged marriage. And the side that, that uh, was going to be divorced wound up not having the power to get a divorce on the terms that they could actually ever live on their own. So this, this is a kind of dynamic, uh, if there's anything unique, it's, the fa it's this strange imbalance of power that, that is certainly not unique. There's many other places but compared to, that have this, but compared to other settler colonial situations where you essentially just had a, a successful genocide, um, like the United States and in many ways in Australia uh, and certainly many of the Latin American countries where the indigenous population was more or less wiped out fairly quickly. Here in, in Israel-Palestine you have a struggle that continues. And what's interesting to me as a historian, and I, I'm fairly certain is also interested to my colleagues here, is that these dynamics really reflect something bigger than just Israel-Palestine. In other words, if we look at what's happened in this country. And again, I don't, I don't know what to call it because whatever you call it, you're taking sides. So if I say Israel-Palestine, someone will complain, well, why are you saying Israel first before Palestine? If I say Palestine-Israel, I'll get the reverse. If I say Palestine, then, well, then you're, uh, the latest term I think is auto-anti-Semite instead of self-hating Jew. If I say Israel, then of course I'm, I get, why, why aren't you mentioning Palestine? So the term I use is Palestine-Israel. And I use it because before Israel was here as a state, it was called Palestine. And everyone called it Palestine, including Jews who lived in Palestine, including Zionist Jews. So I like the term Palestine-Israel as a rule um, because it covers everything. And it's historically accurate. And I'm a historian, so the first thing I want to be is historically accurate. Um, I, I, I've been trying for weeks to really think about what to say, but again, I feel very inadequate coming to a place that has such a deep history of settler colonialism and trying to talk about my own little place that I know. And I also don't want to come here as an expert because this is a public talk. I'm not here to talk about deep, uh, you know, deep historical structures or what I've found in the archives. I'm here to try to share my own experiences. And I'm really happy to be here with two people who have other very deep experiences equally and in some cases certainly more knowledgeable and valid than mine. So my main goal is to start a conversation. Right? And the way I'd like to start is, is um, first of all, to ask you guys in the audience, who here has actually been to this place, Palestine, Israel? Wow. 
Okay, so that's good. So now we're in a whole other, this is strange because you're so far away. But if I was in the US and I asked that question, four people's hands would go up. So this, so this changes a lot of things. So let me ask you another question. Who here has been to the village of Nabi Saleh? Ah, okay. So uh, how, many people have, how many people here have been to the occupied territories? Okay, and how many people have been, and I don't mean just to the airport, but have been and traveled through Israel? Okay, so a lot of you have been to both, so, so that's the important thing. So when, when Lucia and I started to think about this, we, we, we thought very quickly, there's no point coming here and just talking about what's wrong, right? And how bad everything is, and how so-and-so is getting screwed, or how much violence there is. I think most of us know that. Who we might blame or hold accountable might be subject to debate, but I think we can all, we all probably have an understanding that things are not the way they're supposed to be, that promises that were made and peace that was supposed to come 22, 24 years ago already has not arrived, that we are in a situation that wasn't supposed to be. We should be now, what, almost 20 years into an independent Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza, according to the 1993 uh, declaration for, uh, that began the uh, Oslo Accords, the Oslo Peace Process. It was supposed to be a five-year transition process that should have ended around 1999. Of course, no one could say at that point on paper what that was supposed to end as, but everyone thought they knew what they couldn't really say, although maybe in hindsight they should have thought a little harder about what it meant if they couldn't even say where they were supposed to be going. But it was everyone thought that even though they couldn't say it, where they would end would be in two states, right? Uh, a Jewish majority state in, within the 1967 borders of Israel and a Palestinian state in the West Bank, Gaza, and some part of East Jerusalem with some kind of something funny that no one wanted to f talk about publicly that would somehow make the holy sites around the Western Wall and the Haram al-Sharif open to everyone or the sovereignty belongs to God or something like that. That was where it was supposed to be. And I remember when it happened, how excited everyone was. I wasn't excited though. And the only, the only person I knew other than me who wasn't so excited was Edward Said who I didn't know yet really at that point, but he famously, when, when the Oslo Accords were signed in, uh, in Washington on the White House, he was you know, say, saying this is not gonna work, this is a disaster, and everyone was saying, please shut up, Edward, this is a good day, this, things are gonna go well, you're just being gloomy, and Edward, yes? Yes? Why were you so excited? I wasn't excited. Why wasn't I excited? No, I wasn't. The only person besides me who I knew of, everyone I knew was excited about it. I, I had been studying already and been traveling to Israel and the occupied territories long enough. I was like, this doesn't sound like it's really going to turn out the way everyone thinks it's going to turn out. And of course, the academics who studied it were nervous. Most of them wanted to be happy, though, so they said, okay, let's hope. Inshallah, as everyone, even Israelis like to say, right? Inshallah, this will somehow work out, but Edward Said, being Edward Said, this is not going to work out. It's going to be a disaster. You're all wasting your time. This is basically a hostile takeover in the guise of a merger or, or a separation, and, and it's not going to work. And of course, he was right in retrospect, and we should have known that. 
right? Because already, almost a decade early, earlier, a very well-known Israeli scholar, Menron Ben Venisti, who had done more work on the West Bank than anyone, uh, edited a, a very important document called the West Bank uh, Database Project. And on the very last page of that document slash book, he said the territories were already too integrated to ever be separated again. This was almost, depends on which edition you look at, five, six, seven years before the peace process, before even the Intifada erupted, right? When there was only about a few dozen settlements and about 70,000 settlers, already scholars who wanted to look, who were willing to look deeply at what was going on, knew that the territories were already so integrated into Israel through settlements, through trade, through all the different ways that, that uh, they had been integrated, that they could never be separated. So anyone who thought, even in the 80s, before the Intifada, that you were going to ever separate these was just, you know, was living a pipe dream because it couldn't happen. And of course, that was the whole point, right? Almost immediately when Israel conquered the remainder of Mandate Palestine in 1967, it began a process to make sure they could never be given up. Now, in the early years, uh, leaders like Moshe Dayan, most of you have probably heard of Moshe Dayan, the guy with the eye patch, um, who's the general who helped uh, conquer the West Bank and, and, and Gaza and East Jerusalem. They wanted, and, and even Ben-Gurion, even though he famously said that they should get rid of the territories, because he, he thought by that point, now that he had retired, that trying to keep them would force Israel to choose between it being a Jewish majority democracy or being a kind of what we would today call an apartheid state. Um, most of the Israeli establishment, once the territories were conquered, set about to integrate them so that they could not be separated again. They had at first what was called an open door or an open borders policy. And anyone who traveled to Israel, lived in Israel and the occupied territories in the late 60s, 70s, even 80s, right, till the Intifada, remembers that you could go, and Israelis always on, on Shabbat, right about now, if you were Israeli and you weren't religious, you might be in Ramallah, you might go down to Gaza, you would go to East Jerusalem to do your shopping, to hang out, to get hummus, to do whatever you wanted, and, and upwards at by the end of the, the open door period, over 100,000 Palestinians were working inside Israel and were going back and forth. And there was a huge amount of problems with this and very poignant stories of Palestinians who were kicked out or weren't allowed to return to their homes in what then became Israel. 20 years later would be working in these same places near where they lived. And many of you probably know these stories, so I won't go into them. But the point is that this did not happen by accident. This was exactly what the government of Israel wanted to happen once they conquered the territories. And this is crucial, right? Because the official discourse since that time was that, well, if there's ever a partner for peace, we can do a land for peace deal. Maybe they could have. They were not going to, though. And there was an inexorable process of incorporation from the moment 
that these territories were conquered. It's clear from the archives, it's clear from the documents. Those of you who read Hebrew, if, uh, I'm sure uh, I can, if you haven't seen these documents that are now coming out more than ever because of the 50-year uh, rule, I'm happy to share them with you. Uh, and, there's, uh, and there's websites that have all these documents now as they're being released in Hebrew, and some are even translated. So it's not something we can argue about anymore. This is clear. Right? There, it was clear once it was occupied that the goal was to not give them up. How you don't give them up was a different story. What you do and do you have to share some with Jordan, for example, at some point? And if you look at the, um, or do you have to have some kind of autonomy? If you look at the Camp David Accords that were signed ostensibly as a peace agreement between Israel and Egypt, in fact, a huge percentage of the accords were actually about Palestinian autonomy, not about peace between Israel and Egypt. So there were a lot of attempts to figure out, well, if we don't really want to give them up, if we want to, in fact, settle them with Jews, what are we going to do, right? We can't rule over all these Palestinians. We can't kick them out, right? A lot were either expelled or not allowed to return in 48. Another 250,000 left and were not allowed to return or, or decided not to return in 1967. But most of the ones who were there were not going to, who were still there in 67 were not simply going to leave. And if you're not going to give up this territory, what are you going to do with the people? Because already in 1967, it was pretty clear from an Israeli standpoint, if you were going to not give up these territories, at some point, you were going to be faced with an existential question. Is Israel going to be a democracy? And if it's a Jewish democracy, how can it do that if half the population is not Jewish? And there were only two, two or three ways to do it. First, yes, give up part of the territory give up a lot of the Palestinian population with that territory, and then you don't have to worry about it because you have a four-fifths majority within 1967 borders of Israel. But again, that wasn't going to happen. So while that's a nice idea, nothing ever was done to actually make that a reality. So the next idea is, well, just annex it and get rid of finish, you know, expel more people not really able to do that, even if certainly many Israeli leaders had wanted to do it and still want to do it, you can't just expel the uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of more Palestinians today. There has been a slow expulsion over the years through attrition. If anyone studies the demography, tens of thousands of Palestinians leave almost every year, largely middle class, because they just give up, and a lot of them actually come to Australia. I'm sure some of you uh, who are Palestinian in the audience. I have good friends who came to Australia. They go to Europe, Sweden, the United States. So there is this slow attrition. But still, when you look at the birth rate and, and all the other factors, that's not a way that it's going to happen. So Israel was always stuck. So the, I, the, the solution that Israeli leaders essentially came up with is just stall. Just stall. Just keep this going until we are so ensconced in the West Bank especially, because that's really the biblical heartland of, of ancient Israel. Gaza never had that, that position, if, if anyone knows the biblical history and, and geography. Just, just stall as long as you can stall. That was Yitzhak Shamir's famous phrase. Um, one of, I think it was Sharon's foreign minister or cabinet secretary said, we, uh, during the peace process, what is the goal of the peace process? 
just stall and keep it going until Palestinians become Finns. I don't know exactly what that means, but Palestinian and Finns are not really, uh, you know, people that are going to transform into one another that easily, which was obviously his point. In other words, just stall, and, and the best solution is no solution. And that's, again, very important because that political indeterminacy is actually very relevant for how the occupation proceeded. Because how Israel has managed to essentially eat its cake and still have it in terms of the occupation is that nothing is ever settled. The land is settled, but what, well, that's settled, but we, we, we could give that up. Don't worry, in the right services, we'll give it up. Or, well, that, the territories are not occupied, they're disputed. Right? Or, you know, well, yes, the wall cuts into, you know, 12% or whatever the percentages of the West Bank, but we'll give them the Galilee Triangle. So they'll, they'll get, we'll do land swaps, don't worry. And, you know, and so on and so forth. Anyone who is, anyone who is either Palestinian, then I don't have to explain this to you, or has walked through the West Bank, never mind Gaza as a Palestinian, knows that there's a kind of quantum physics to land in Palestine, especially the West Bank, but also Gaza, which is in some ways its own situation. In other words, you don't know what the land is until you step foot on it, right? You could be a Palestinian walking somewhere, uh, and you say, oh, let me go to there, you know, let me go to that stream to get some water or something, but some drone sees you walking there, and suddenly an Israeli jeep shows up, and now you can't go there, that's a closed military area. What do you mean? That's our well, we've been going there for 30, no, it's closed now, sorry. And then it wasn't closed until you started walking there. But your act of walking there suddenly closed it. Or a settler decides they want to go and bathe in that spring, right? Which somehow settlers love to bathe in springs. It's quite nice to do. They love to be, bathe in springs, especially that belong to Palestinian villages uh, quite often. And of course, when they show up to bathe in the spring, they take 20 or 30 soldiers suddenly have to show up too. And suddenly, up oh, the land is closed. Or you're about to build an extension on your house. No, you can't do that. That's actually area C, not area B. And I could go on. And since so many of you have been to the country, I don't think I need to go on too much. But this is a very important point, that the land is never settled. It's never fixed, even though it is settled more and more. And in fact, Israel controls, when you look at all the territory, well over 60, if not 70% of the West Bank, and certainly controls all of Gaza militarily when you think of the way it, it, it controls the space, it controls the territory around it, it controls the sea, it can enter it anytime it wants. So even though under international law, according to the International Court of Justice, the Security Council, almost every country on earth, the land is legally occupied, Israel said, no, it's not. It's disputed. And it acts as if it is, and in fact, it has been able to transform this land into an indeterminate space because it generated a peace process, and this is absolutely crucial, where the recognized leadership of Palestinians in one of the biggest diplomatic blunders in human history actually signed on to a document that took that territory that was legally occupied under international law and said, well, no, actually, the borders will be decided in negotiation. Right? They basically handed away their strongest chip. 
whether or not they actually had the right to do that and whether or not they can do that is a different story. But diplomatically, they did do that, and Israel has been using that uh, for two decades since then to continue the occupation. So you have this occupation which you never know where it is, you never know where it will end, you never know what's going to happen, right? When Palestinians can't take it anymore and begin to use violence, right, that invites an even stronger response that makes it even harder for them to resist. And that's essentially the situation that has continued. But the root of it goes back to the very beginning of the occupation when there was a decision basically by the leadership, Levi Eshkol, Moshe Dayan, then Golda Meir when she took over, to control, to basically ensure that Israel maintained control over the territory. Most of you probably have heard of the Elan plan, which is part of this idea. But incorporate Palestinians as uh, as a kind of in an ethno-class dimension into Israel while still allowing uh, Israel to rule over the territories in a way that would never challenge its, its hegemony as a Jewish and at least for Jews and for some Palestinians democratic state. Things change though in the 80s, right? In the 80s what happens you have a global transition away uh, from the older capitalist system to what becomes known as neoliberalism. I don't need to get, I don't have time to get into a whole discussion of what neoliberalism is, but it leads to a series of crises in Israel by the mid 80s which lead to hyperinflation, which some of you are my age or older might remember, and leads to a transition away from Israel as a socialist, semi-socialist economy to a much more capital and even the epitome of a kind of liberalized and neoliberalized economy. With that, and coinciding with the, um, with the Intifada, Israel begins roughly in 1990, a process of closing off the territories. This is huge, because for the 20 years until then, Palestinians had moved back and forth to Israel and the territories were more or less open and if you didn't know your geography you wouldn't know except for the signs where you were. And, and, and there was a lot of movement, although again it was very constrained movement, it was very monitored, surveilled, militarized, uh, securitized movement and Palestinians, they could go back and forth to jobs, they certainly couldn't come and live in their old homes. So there was not any kind of inequality, or rather equality, or return to before 48, but it still was a regime of movement. Right? In the late 80s, right, and, 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 and something that the Intifada reinforced because Palestinians for the first time really en masse resisted, uh, the first real mass resistance over the long haul, even more than 1936, was the Intifada. Um, Israel said, well, first of all, we don't need them anymore. We don't need them as workers. The Berlin Wall has fallen. It's easy to travel. There are people from Thailand, the Philippines, Africa, Romania, Bulgaria, you name it. They all come and they'll do the same work Palestinians will do. And the great thing about them is they have no rights here. They have no claim here. They'll work for more or less the same money and we can get rid of them whenever we want. Right? And this was crucial. This changed everything because Palestinians slowly were actually becoming integrated into Israel. I'm talking about the West Bank Palestinians and Gaza Palestinians. They were actually becoming members of the Histadrut. 
They were actually getting insurance and starting and making so much more money working in Israel than they could inside their own territory because Israel wouldn't allow any development in that territory, that they were saving enough money to start buying land that had been vacant because they couldn't afford it in their own areas, in Hebron and all these areas, which was freaking out the Israeli government because it didn't want Palestinians controlling their land. Right? So if they were actually able to buy their own land and have deeds that were actually recorded contemporarily, <coughs> this would make it much harder for Israel to control more of the occupied territories permanently. So for a whole bunch of reasons, Israel started imposing an idea of closure. And this changes everything. Right? And then you have the Gulf War, etc., and then the Madrid peace process. And what happens with Madrid the Madrid peace process, because Israel won't negotiate with the PLO, is led by local people like Faisal Husseini, Hanan Ashrawi, Abdullah Shafi um, from, from Gaza, and other really strong local personalities who know their own ground, who aren't from Tunis or Beirut, who, who are living there and answerable to the people living there. So, of course, they are not going to give an inch. They're, they are not willing to just sell their patrimony out for power. They are not willing to make the compromises that are the minimum compromises that Israel would accept. So as this peace process is failing over time, Israel says uh, they start a secret negotiating process, first in Stockholm, and then when uh, there's a change of government to a more conservative government in Sweden, the, uh, the, the Swedish diplomats called their friends in Oslo and said, can you take this over, please? And that's why it's the Oslo and not the Stockholm peace process, because of, uh, I think, the first time ever, actually, that the Social Democrats lost power in Sweden since the Second World War. So that becomes Oslo. And the thing about Oslo is because it's signed by a PLO that is desperate, that is far away, that is not beholden directly to the local population, they are willing to sign on to things that no local Palestinian would have ever signed on to. Like saying, oh yeah, the borders are up for negotiation, sure. Right? And, and I, I know a lot of people who are on the Palestinian team during the Madrid process. You can imagine they were not too happy. That's why Edward Said was not happy too, because he was working with them. They knew. Right away, this was not going to end well. But the PLO was desperate for a way in. And of course, most of you who are a little bit older remember the, the, those rousing cheers when Arafat arrives in Gaza and, and then the PA starts the Palestinian Authority. But again, if you actually knew what was happening and you were being honest, you knew this was never going to work. It was doomed to fail. Because it didn't do the one simple thing that would have been necessary for there to be a successful peace process, which is stop the settlements. You don't stop the settlements, you don't stop moving in settlers, you don't stop what the Israeli geographer uh, Jeff Halper has called the matrix of control, then it doesn't matter if you wait five years or 50 years, you're never going to have the conditions necessary to have a, a economically and territorially viable Palestinian state to come into existence. And that is in fact what people warned, who were knowledgeable, and that is in fact what happened. And of course, Palestinian violence continued and then it became much more uh, terroristic locally, especially with Hamas's uh, rise, uh, which was created in part, if not by the Israelis, but encouraged by the Israelis in, after the Intifada, but certainly 1994 after Baruch Goldstein's massacre, uh, instead of pulling the settlers out of Hebron, they actually closed off 
and actually punished the, the, the indigenous population for being massacred. And, and this really led to the wave of Palestinian suicide bombings, which essentially became the raison d'etre for the end of the, um, for more or less the end of the peace process. But at the same time, settlements continued. The number of settlers during the Oslo peace process doubled. If you want to know why there's no peace, that's the single biggest, that's the one answer you need to know. If Israel wanted to leave the territories, why did they move, why did they double the number of settlers living there during the years that were supposed to be a transition towards Palestinian independence? There's the only answer is because they didn't want to uh, allow the creation of a Palestinian state. And we can, I'm happy to take questions about the geography of that and whether or not most of the settlements are within a few miles and what that really, of, of the border, et cetera. But to me, as someone who was living there, working there, and walking through there all the time during these years, that is my assessment, not political assessment, my assessment as a scholar who was experiencing how this matrix of control was getting denser and denser and denser, the more it was supposed to be moving towards the very opposite, which was a new Middle East where everyone was free and there was open borders, et cetera. So it couldn't happen. So then we know what happens. We have uh, Sharon showing up at the Haram al-Sharif. The Intifada, the Al-Aqsa Intifada begins. It gets very bloody very quickly. Israel starts closing off the territories even more, starts building a wall. It walls in Gaza. It starts building the wall around um, around the West Bank, cutting deep into the West Bank. The International Court of Justice says you can't do that. Israel basically says, well, what are you going to do about it? And nothing. So it keeps building the wall. And today, of course, the same people who build that wall are now going to be, I'm going to be spending my tax dollars for them apparently to build a wall in Mexico. Something tells me it won't be encroaching too deeply into the Mexican side of the border, however. Um, but it'll be high enough so you can't throw drugs over it, which is apparently Donald Trump's main fear that big sacks of drugs might land on poor people's heads and just kill them or something like that. Um, that is apparently a problem in Mexico. Or, or on, I don't know which side of the border it's a problem on, but apparently it's a problem. Um, so, so we know what's happened, right? And, and this goes on, and then we have the horrible um, invasions of Gaza in 2008 and 2009. You have Palestinian terrorism, you have the, and all these things which have made peace a, a distant dream, right? So now what? Right? what? Should we just be hopeless? Why are we even here tonight? It's a lovely night in Sydney. I would probably rather be walking around your beautiful oceanfront than having to repeat this story yet again. You probably would rather not have to be listening to this story and wish it was all over. So why are we here? Right? If there's no hope, we might as well be talking about Myanmar, Myanmar, somewhere where maybe something can be done. Right? So I. I have a feeling everyone is here because you must imagine there's got to be some hope. Something's got to change, right? This hasn't gone on this long. It hasn't ended in genocide. It hasn't ended in the Jews thrown in the sea. It ha there hasn't been mass expulsion. Somehow there is, however sick and distorted, there is a stasis that somehow leaves this indeterminacy alive enough so that people can hope. And the funny thing is, when I'm outside of Palestine, Israel, I can't really hope. I'm just depressed all the time. The only time I'm not depressed, strangely enough, I don't know if you guys have the same feeling, is when you're inside. Uh, and not just in Israel. Forget about inside Israel. I'm, no, because that's like, that's a fantasy land where you don't, you don't have to think about the territories, right? But when you're in the territories, the time I'm most helpful, hopeful these days is when I'm getting tear gassed by the Israeli army. 
which is a strange time to be hopeful. But, um, but I want to end with this little story because it actually is the best time to be hopeful, right? So um, I mentioned Nabi Saleh, right? Nabi Saleh is a small village, um, beautiful, beautiful place, um, has a lovely stream, thus the name, which most of the residents there are not allowed to go to, uh, although they kind of have a race. If they see the settlers go, they run down, or if the settlers see them, they run down. Whoever gets there first kind of can use the stream for a few minutes until the Israeli army shows up and then kicks everyone out and then usually lets the settlers back in. But, um, but Nebi Salg is a beautiful little village in a beautiful part of the West Bank, about 20 kilometers north North of north, one way or another, I forget of of Ramallah, and um, for years now they have had every Friday a demonstration, and this demonstration would be basically there's a piece of territory. Nemesalik is kind of on a hill. You go down a bit and you get to this main road, which is one of these main settler roads, and on the other, which of course was built to cut off the village from the spring, which is out on the other side of the road. And every Friday, this territory, which normally Palestinians can travel through, which is, again, part of the indeterminacy of the space. Normally, you can travel through. It's no problem. But on Friday, it's a war zone. But it's not actually a war zone. It's a, the it's a stage. It's actually a stage for a, a, an amazing piece of theater. On Friday, around 11 o'clock, everyone gathers in the village at the sort of village hall. And the great thing about it is it's never just Palestinians. It's Palestinians. It's Israelis. Israeli Jews, it's internationals, it's Jewish peace activists and others. And it's really the most hopeful place I've ever been in a long time. Because it is the future, right? Or at least it's the future I hope for. Because you see Palestinians, Israelis, Jews, Muslims, Christians, Europeans, a few crazy Japanese um, tourists who always show up somehow. Who, are, who are, have decided that this is a place where the future can begin. And if any of you haven't seen this, you, probably a lot of you have seen the videos of the, the Tamimi family, who is basically the main family of the village, and their daughter, who's like this firebrand little girl. I first met her when she was about seven. She's the girl, if any of you have seen the videos, <coughs> who's always running up to the Israelis and screaming at them and you know, really just ready to fight them by herself. And the Israeli soldier always looking at her like, get, they don't know what to do with her because they don't want to usually, I mean, they have no problem often killing children, but not, not in this circumstance. Um, and, and, um, and it's just an amazing scene. But then the activists come, they march down, the Israelis show up, and it's always like, okay, now what? And then the Israelis say, this is now a closed area. The, the people start chanting with the Palestinian flags. When they move down, about 10 meters down the hill, the tear gas starts, everyone runs down, kids throw stones. This goes on for about an hour. The tear gas, until it gets late enough Friday afternoon where the Israeli soldiers are like, it's Friday. We want, to go, we want to go back home, so you've got to end this now. And, and at some point, someone gets a call and says, it's time to end this. And if the Palestinians say no, then they start moving to rubber bullets. And if they still don't end, then they start moving to live ammo. And then it ends usually pretty quickly. People have been killed. I've seen people shot there at demonstrations. But usually, mostly what happens is people, you get tear gassed. And, you, and, and if you're not so lucky, you get shot with a rubber bullet, which is not actually a rubber bullet. It's a, it's a big metal thing with a plastic coating and they really hurt um, and if they're not being nice they'll shoot at your head but usually they shoot at your stomach or your thighs so it just hurts a lot but um, but it won't kill you 
Um, and, and this is a kind of theater play. And everyone knows the rules, right? Palestinians know if they, get, if, if they cross any line, the Israelis will shoot and switch to live ammo. Israelis know that there's internationals there, there's Jews, there, American Jews there, Israeli Jews, so they try not to shoot people. Um, they try not to shoot everyone because they don't want to shoot the wrong person, of course. Then they get in trouble. So, so it, and, it, and even though they haven't succeeded in winning anything in the larger sense, this has held off the Israelis, especially from the nearby settlement, from taking over this beautiful piece of land which they have long wanted to take over. So it actually works, right? And what you realize in the tear gas, right, as when you're sitting there not breathing and not knowing what's, what's going to happen next, and you see so many people, old and young, Israeli, Palestinian, international, is that they are fighting, and if you ask everyone, well, what do you think is going to happen? What's the future going to be? This, We don't know. That's not the point. We just have to come together to resist. And in resisting, some, a new identity is being created. And that is, to me, the only possible future, is that future that you see in Nabi Saleh, which is exactly why the Israelis get so angry, the Israeli government, especially military, doesn't like it, and, and at one point in the past year, they started responding with such violence, they had to stop, um, stop the protest for a while. So, so this, is a, this is a future that I think can be forged. But let me just end by talking politically for a minute. Well, how, what would that future look like? Well, I think, and I think um, maybe you guys can talk about it a bit too more, that um, you know, we are not in an occupation anymore. Right? The occupation's over. Right? 50 years, it's over. We are, it's over because it's just simply not an occupation. An occupation is a temporary situation with a recognized belligerent who is following certain rules of international law, and, and it is by definition temporary. And whenever the larger political conflict is resolved, the belligerent leaves and then sovereignty returns. That's never going to happen. We are in now effectively a one-state solution. So those of you who say, oh, the one-state solution is horrible, you've been living in a one-state solution. It's been a one-state solution, and now it is absolutely a one-state solution. There is one political sovereign power in all of mandate historical Palestine. That is the state of Israel. And it is a place now, you can call it whatever you want, apartheid, not apartheid, ethnocracy, whatever you want to call it, what is clear is that there is one sovereign power and people have different, very different set of rights vis-a-vis -vis that state depending on their religion and ethnicity. You can decide what you want to call that, right? But that's what it is. Now, can we get a two-state solution? Can someone wake up at some point and say, this is enough of this, let's split. Let's just do this the real way. Let's do what Oslo was supposed to do. Let's separate, have two states. I mean, of course it could happen in theory, but it will never happen. And it wasn't going to happen already if we remember what Meron Benvenisti said 20, 30 something years ago. It was too late when there was one tenth the population in the territories and there was a, hardly any settlement. It's certainly never going to happen now. So if there is no territorial two-state solution, what's the solution? Well, one solution is one state. You know, the PLO program from the 70s, one secular democratic state where everyone supposedly, I'm not saying that, that that would have actually happened, but that was the program. It was also the Israeli Communist Party had the same program. One secular democratic state. 
Good luck if you think that's going to happen anytime soon. Again, because Israeli Jews who have all the power, more or less, or at least 85, 90% of it, are never going to agree to a simple majoritarian state where they would be out, uh, out, uh, outvoted uh, almost immediately. So that's never going to happen, even if you think it should happen. So what about a binational state? I don't even know what that means. Um, although I support it, but I don't know what it means. Um, there have been binational programs going back to the 20s and 30s, mostly Zionist groups like Brit Shalom, who supported this. Um, and basically, it's a kind of single state, but it's one where there's enough separate institutions and some kind of voting that is not simple majoritarian rules so that neither side can actually ever impose its will completely on the other and, and commit kinds of abuses or deny the other fundamental rights. So that's a possibility, but again, why would Israelis agree to that when they have everything? Remember, the occupation today costs the average Israeli the price of a cappuccino. That's a very important thing to keep in mind. Right? You're talking about the price of a cappuccino, not even a Starbucks cappuccino, a slightly less expensive cappuccino. Right? So if, 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 if someone's saying, this, you can continue this forever for the price of a cappuccino a day, or you can engage in something approaching civil war to try to do something more just. Even if you want that more, if you'd like that, it's either civil war or a cappuccino. Most people anywhere in the world is going to choose to just pay the $3 a day and, you know, let their conscience occasionally be panged, right? So this binational state thing, which I think is a wonderful solution, right, is probably not going to happen either any time in the near future. So then what? Do we just have this forever, like Yitzhak Shamir hoped, right? Um, or until Palestinians become Finns, whatever that means, right? As Ariel Sharon had hoped, right? I don't think so. I edited a book. We had, I had a 10-year project with a bunch of uh, leading Israeli, Palestinian, and international scholars to develop this idea of shared sovereignty or parallel sovereignty, what we call parallel states. And we published a book in 2014 called One Land, Two States, Israel and Palestine as Parallel States. And the idea was, and again, this is not the only idea. There's many of these, but I'm just giving you the one we worked on because I know it. It's been 10 years studying it. The idea is, well, the problem with Israel-Palestine that it epitomizes is that it's a classic Westphalian competition for territorial sovereignty. It's a zero-sum game. Because if, if you have a territorial notion of sovereignty, if you have sovereignty on this territory, I don't have sovereignty on it. And if sovereignty means anything, that means you have rights that I don't have, and no one wants to give up those rights. So if you're going to have two states, you can't have it based on a Westphalian notion of territorial sovereignty because that's the zero-sum competition which has us, gotten us into this mess. So a bunch of diplomats um, who had been working in the peace process for a long time and had worked in other areas like Nagorno-Karabakh and other areas that the UN um, has dealt with said, well, why do we even need to do, why do we have to only have territorial sovereignty? What happens if you share sovereignty over the same territory? This happens already, the EU, for example. There's layers of sovereignty in any member of the EU. Happens in, right? there's, there's many examples, in fact, of shared sovereignty. But the idea in this case that a bunch of very smart uh, scholars who come from the country developed was basically to have two states over the same land. And what that would mean is that 
the individual citizen, Palestinian or Jewish Israeli, um, could associate with her or his state regardless of where they lived because their citizenship no longer was tied to where they lived. Now this, of course, already, someone already has that. Israeli Jews have that. They can live anywhere in, Ma in Palestine, they feel like, and they're still citizens of the Jewish state, right? So anyone who says, well, this is a crazy idea, say, well, half the population of this territory actually is already living this dream. The question is, how do you give it to the other half? And why would the state of Israel, which has 90%, 85%, 100% of the cards, why would they agree to this if for $3 a day per capita, they could just continue the status quo forever and no one seems to care, right? And the question is, in other words, what can you do to make this a win-win and not just the stronger side giving up something for essentially nothing but trouble, right? And here's the thing with this idea of parallel states that we figured out. If you have parallel states, in other words, if you impose an Israeli and a Palestinian state, two systems of government in the same territory over all the territory, Israelis could live anywhere, including, of course, the biblical heartland of Israel, which is what all this is still being fought over right now, the heartland of the West Bank. But Palestinians could live everywhere. Palestinians could have a right of return, in fact, because it no longer matters what percentage or what the percentages of the populations are in which part of the country because the states, right, Jews are generally, not only, but Jews would be citizens of the Jewish state, whereas Palestinians, who generally are not Jewish, um, would be citizens of the Palestinian state. Now, you could be thinking this is the stupidest idea you, I have ever heard. This is completely unworkable. And you're right. It's completely unworkable right now. Although, if you read the book, you can see a lot of people have spent a lot of time to show exactly how it could work and what the precedents are in international law and in other conflict zones and in other situations where there have been and still are kinds of shared sovereignty that are not actually that different from what you're talking about now. So this is just one example. I could talk about it more uh, if people want more uh, details. But I just think somehow, in year 51 of the occupation, there is still a chance to be hopeful. Ironically, for me, the hope comes in the tear gas, because that's where people are willing to sacrifice everything to build a common future together. That's the first thing you need. If people are not willing to think about a common future, then this is a, we're wasting time and we should all be somewhere else. And the second thing is, if people are but don't know how, then you need to be creative about, create, about what kind of political arrangement might be actually workable and not be zero-sum, which is the thing that has most defeated any attempts at compromise to this day. So I will just stop there and say this is just one simple, not so simple, but, but a proposal that has been thought out and, and looked at. There are others, confederation, two, one, one home, or two homelands, one people. There's a lot of them out there done by Israelis and Palestinians. We're all kind of getting to the same point, which is we are in a new era. The era of globalization, despite all the problems, is one where we can reimagine the basic foundations of sovereignty and statehood. Not just in Israel-Palestine, it needs to be everywhere, as we see with global warming, climate change, the ideas of nation-state with hard borders, 
It's not working. We see that with the refugee crises. We see this in so many ways. So if we accept that and we're willing to be creative, there actually are solutions out there that can serve as a model for beginning to move forward to a future based on equality and peace and justice. Thank you. especially for finishing on a positive note on uh, hope and uh, the necessity to be creative uh, in building hope. I just would like to... <laughs> I can see that either of you wants to... So, uh, I know both of you, Lana and Anthony, have been recently in uh, Palestine and Israel, so maybe you can uh, start from your own experience, eh? which is just the most recent one, because you, all, you both have a long experience of being there. But uh, how Mark's words resonates with your recent experience there, and how this call for hope and creativity makes sense with your experience? Thank you. Well, in general, I've been just come back from living in Jerusalem for the last couple of years, East Jerusalem, and I think it'd be fair to say if you're Palestinian, there's little or no hope. That's hardly a revelation. If you're an Israeli supremacist, there's a lot of hope because the wind is in your sails. And I think one of the interesting things about the current trends of what's happening in the region, in many ways I agree with a lot of what has just been said, but I think there are a few other issues that are worth raising in terms of the the dynamic of why I think it's difficult in the short term to have too much hope but also to be aware of who one's enemies are and also who one's friends are. The Palestinian leadership is the friend of no Palestinians. That's both the Palestinian Authority and Hamas. Having spent time, quite a bit of time in Gaza and also in the West Bank, the reality is that many Gazans I spend time with find the Hamas regime there dictatorial, uh, appallingly repressive against women, hardly providing a model for the future, uh, repressive on day-to-day -day life. Hamas, and this is not my personal view, this is, although I have that view myself, it's many Palestinians in Gaza. There can, obviously one can find Palestinians there who support Hamas, but in general, there is a deep disillusionment about the Hamas regime. It's been in power for 10 years. Elections were held many years ago. It's a police state, essentially, who seems to model itself on maybe Saudi Arabia rather than a democracy. Now, someone in the audience might say, however, there's been a 10-year brutal siege. Undeniably true. There's been an unbelievably brutal blockade imposed by Israel and Egypt and, to some extent, Australia and the US from afar. Undeniably true. But if you speak to someone who lives in Gaza and you ask who they blame for the current situation, they'll blame everybody, but they'll also not unreasonably blame the government who controls them. That's Hamas. It's not the Palestinian Authority. It's not the US, in my view. It's not Australia. It's Hamas. And that's not for a second to dismiss any of the other issues that go on around. This is not operating in a vacuum. I'm well aware of that. But I think one of the things that often frustrates me when we talk about the Israel-Palestine issue is how little we talk about the leadership, as middly as colonial as it is, of 
the Palestinian leadership who controls the lives of many people in the West Bank, moving across there. Many will be aware in the last few months the Palestinian Authority, this is not by pressure from Israel, this is the PA's choice to impose laws that say you can be put in prison for writing Facebook posts. This is the reality of life in the West Bank today. Increasingly, Israel is working with the Palestinian Authority to um, support that, to be sure. But the reality is it's a dictatorial environment. Nobody should think that the PA is going to bring liberation to Palestine. And in my view and many Palestinians, I know the sooner the PA is abolished, the better. The sooner it's abolished, the better. The Arab world is no friend of the Palestinian people. The Arab people are friends of the Palestinian people, to be sure. You cannot name me one Arab government in anywhere in the Middle East that is an actual friend of the Palestinian people. For decades, they've been very happy to maintain the illusion of being an enemy of Israel while actually increasingly becoming friends with Israel. There's a reason why Saudi Arabia and Bahrain and the UAE are very friendly with Israel, mostly privately rather than publicly. That's the reality of the Arab world leadership today. Not an enemy of Israel. Forget what they say speeches. It doesn't matter. What matters is what they do. And what they're doing is intelligence sharing, surveillance equipment being sold between them. That's the reality of the Arab leadership today. Because the common enemy is framed to be Iran. We all know what this agenda is about. So to me, we have to ask ourselves if the Palestinian people who have been under a brutal, I would say it hasn't been 50 years, I'd say it's been 70-year occupation, then we have to say to ourselves, who are the friends of the Palestinian people? It's not the Arab leadership. It's not the Palestinian leadership. It actually ultimately has to be to meet international community and activists within Palestine itself who are providing a far more articulate vision of what the future may look like. Now, to me, ultimately what that vision looks like, having spent quite a lot of time in both those environments, is twofold, and I'll be brief. One, there's now roughly 700,000 Jewish settlers living in the West Bank. Every single one of them is there illegally under international law. Roughly 700,000 people. And as Mark rightly said, they're not going to be going anywhere. You could maybe move some of them. You could maybe move, let's say you even move half of them into Israel proper. You're not going to get rid of 700,000 Jewish settlers to move somewhere else. They are there semi-permanently. And I spent quite a lot of time last year doing a story and I was just living and sleeping with a lot of settlers, some of the most extreme settlers, sleeping in a literal sense rather than any other sense before you wonder what I meant by that. So with some of the more extreme settlers who carry weapons, who are ideological, who are deeply religious. And one of the fascinating things, these guys were either Israelis or Americans. I also met some Australians who were there living on occupied territory. And what was so fascinating about spending time with these people, and I was not hiding my own views, although I was obviously a journalist, I wasn't hiding what I was doing. I had uh, robust, you could say, discussions with them. Um, there was both an arrogance and also a deep insecurity. There was an arrogance because they not unreasonably are saying, life's pretty good. We have resources, we have territory, we have the IDF to protect us, we have all these practical day-to-day -day benefits. But at the same time, we're nervous that somehow we're going to be told to leave. 
And ultimately, if the IDF left tomorrow, if the IDF was not protecting these these settlers, the vast, vast bulk of those settlers would leave the following day. I heard that time and time and time again. The IDF's not about to leave tomorrow, yes. But I say that because do not believe that simply all the settlers are in this belief that they're going to be there forever. I'm actually not convinced that many of them actually believe that. That was my experience. And I think another issue which is really not talked about as much as it should be is the internal Jewish-Israeli debate that is saying that it's a myth to say that there's a homogenous Israeli population. Real change in a positive direction is not going to be coming from the Israeli Jewish population. What is, is coming is a real or some kind of serious civil strife, I would say, between Jews. Putting aside the Palestinians for a sec, there is a growing chasm opening up within Israel itself between so-called liberal Jews, who are arguably still the majority, depends how you define liberal, to be sure, and a growing, sizable minority who are deeply fundamentalist, who want to establish a Taliban-style state, obviously Jewish, not Muslim, within the territory, territory being Israel and Palestine. Just two weeks ago, a senior member of Likud, which, by the way, is Netanyahu's party in power in Israel, put forward a proposal which is arguing for a forcible ethnic cleansing. doesn't use that language. Forcible ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. Palestinians will be given under this plan two choices. One choice is give up all your rights and live here under occupation or leave to Jordan, to Egypt, to somewhere else. Now that position is not a fringe view anymore. 20, 30, 40 years ago there's always been crazy Jewish Zionists who believed that and wanted that. This is now, I'm not saying it's mainstream, I'm saying it's moving towards the mainstream. So when we talk and constantly hear, as we do in Australia and elsewhere, that Israel is a robust democracy, ask yourself, and we should be asking our democratic, so-called democratic leaders here, whether they feel comfortable with a member of Netanyahu's government, the elected government of Israel, putting forward a proposal that says forcible ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. That's the reality today. And one of the things I think that is really concerning is that without a, and I do argue for a one-state solution, call it whatever you want, a state where every citizen has exactly the same rights. And to me, as a Jew, although I'm an atheist, but as a Jew, I say, why should I have a, a right to return? Why, which, for those who don't know in the audience, as a Jew, as a Jew, someone who was born Jewish with a Jewish mother, I have an absolute right to go to Israel tomorrow and claim citizenship, while a Palestinian who has arguably far more connection to the land does not have that right. That, to me, is inherently racist and inherently problematic. And to me, if we actually believe in democracy, if Jews become a minority in that territory, which is arguably what's already the case now, demographically, or certainly going to be soon, then Jews around the world and Israelis will need to accept the fact that they are going to be a minority population with protection. If there is going to be a real democracy in that whole territory, Jews will likely not be a majority. Now, I'm comfortable with that. A lot of Israelis undeniably are very uncomfortable with that, to be sure. 
But I think the debate and the language needs to change, and it is shifting to saying, well, if we as an international community, whether it's Australia or the US or NGOs, want to engage in this question, we have to ask ourselves whether a democracy looks like a country where Jews maintain their so-called majority by force alone. And there's deep complicity in this current arrangement of countless NGOs in this arrangement. For those of you who don't know, a lot of NGOs do unbelievably vital work in Gaza and the West Bank, providing everything from uh, water sanitation, vital work. However, those of you might be less aware of the fact that the EU, particularly and Australia, regularly has what they provide destroyed by the IDF. A solar panel destroyed. Millions and millions and millions of dollars of equipment is destroyed every year. And the complaints from the EU and Australia and others is mute at best. Please don't do that. It's literally along those lines. So until there is a shift in how our own governments view Israel and that behaviour, I think it's going to be difficult. And I'll just finish on this point. I think there's also a real myth that goes on that the real power here is if the US position changes, we're going to be in better shape over there. And I'd agree with that. But it's a myth to believe that Donald Trump, as wonderfully fantastic as he is, is somehow far worse than Barack Obama on this question. Let's be clear about this. Not that Mark said that, to be, to be honest at all. I'm saying that to many people who are liberal, who sort of live under this illusion that Trump has come in and he's a disaster. Domestically, undeniably, there have been changes which are disastrous for countless minorities in the US, for sure. And there's been a lot of policies during the Obama years that were also pretty disastrous to minorities in the US. But in Israel-Palestine, Obama cemented the apartheid system, didn't change it, didn't question it. Giving a few speeches to talk about the settlements being bad doesn't really cut it after 50 years of occupation. And so far, nine months in, Trump is merely continuing that charade of a so-called peace process. So let's be under no illusion that a different US president would change anything. To me, ultimately, there needs to be outside pressure, whether that's boycotts, whether that is a change in putting pressure on our own elected leadership here. And it's remarkable to me, despite all the propaganda, which I would argue comes out of much of the press in Australia, public opinion, all of us, in the last 10 years, has radically shifted to be far more sympathetic to Palestinians. Public opinion polls have shown this. So that has to be translated somehow into political power. So when you see a lot of Jewish groups, the Israel lobby groups, politicians, slavishly bowing down before Israel, that's done out of weakness, not strength. I'll leave it at that. I think I'll keep my comments um, quite brief, especially since uh, Mark articulated um, many of the things I wanted to convey, starting with, um, with depressing you and finishing with the hope. Um, but I guess um, I would want to focus my contribution. We're talking about the one-state solution, about the fact that what we have is already a one state that looks in a different looks in different ways. So we have Israel enacting its sovereignty over of the entire Palestine, with different regimes of governance uh, and different regimes of citizenship. 
And this is important. So we have the Palestinian citizens who are granted citizen as a matter of international compromise. We have um, the, um, the Palestinian in East Jerusalem who are granted residency, made uh, especially vulnerable for ethnic cleansings through the rev uh, revoking their residency. Since 67, 15,000 have lost the residency. We have the Palestinians in the West Bank who are colonial subjects. And we have the people in the Palestinians in Gaza, which I even don't know how to begin to describe their status. I think colonial subjecthood doesn't even be begin to describe uh, their condition. And we need to understand that this this system is not coincidental. It emerged as such from the very early days of the Jewish state. This was actually the vision that Ben-Gurion was advancing at the, early, at the early years of the state. And this is what we are seeing now. And the logic is clear. The logic is territorial expansion and leave the question of population for later. And this is what is happening. So we had 48, we had the large wave of ethnic cleansing, then we have 67, more territory, but more Palestinians. And what we have now is a particular reconfiguration of the territory that is constantly being divided and redivided into settler colonial frontiers where ethnic cleansing is being done in, in these particular frontiers. So think about uh, the Naqab, the Negev uh, in South Israel. Uh, think about Area C, but think about it in terms of enclaves, right? Think about it in terms of the Jordan Valley, in terms of the South Hebron Hills, etc. And what we are having there is actually increasingly a successful project of settler colonization. So what we are facing is settler colonialism that is in its, still in its midst. And this is what would differentiate it from the settler colonialism that we're seeing in other Anglophone contexts in which it, to an extent it has been triumphant. And if you take Area C, for example, which constitutes 60% of the West Bank, already 70% uh, of the land is under Israeli control. It's state land. And if we look at the population ratio, we already have there 400,000 settlers compared with approximately anything between 200,000 to 300,000 Palestinians. So we really need to start understanding what we are facing. And this project is continuing, and the normalization of settlement is actually succeeding. And it is quite surprising because actually the delegitimization of the policies of Israel is being acknowledged at least increasingly internationally, um, certainly um, by people, if not governments. Um, and what we need in that sense to start and comprehend First of all, the way in which we articulate what is it that, we're safe, that we are facing. And we are facing settler colonialism, now 21st century, that is at its midst. And what we are facing is a rage, racial regime. It's not ethnic privilege. This is a racial regime. And the question is whether morally or ethically, we are to accept regimes that are based on privilege for a particular racial group. And I'm talking about race as a constructed category, not as a natural category. 
that sees itself as entitled. And this is where the solution becomes, this is where the question of the solution comes. And what we need to start thinking is less about, we are talking about one state solution, but our task is how can we reach, how we can center decolonization and deracialization. And in that sense, what we have here is Israel resembling to an extent the Anglophone settler colonial states such as Australia, we're here, right? But in terms of decolonization, because of the demography, because the Palestinian remained in particular significant political subject that exists on this territory, being ethnically cleansed, but at the moment within the territory itself, not, not necessarily outside of the ter um, territory, except for particular cases. And in that sense, the decolonization resembles more South Africa. So starting to think about decolonization and deracialization and one man, one vote is an important, is an important uh, step. It's not enough. We need to think about clear visions, but it is certainly a step forward um, towards starting to reshift the conversation, both locally and internationally. And here's where the predicament of Palestinian politics comes into play. If South, in South Africa, uh, the resistance movement was clear about the end of apartheid, in the Palestinian case, it is not clear what is the demand. And you have a fragmentation of Palestinians between dif different political solutions and a clear divide also between the leadership, especially the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian people. So the, the, the way to start moving forward is really, and maybe this is a space for hope and maybe despair, <laughs> depends on the ability of Palestinians and all Palestinians in Israel, in the West Bank, Gaza, and refugees to be united again in, under one umbrella of decolonial project and deracial project. And in that sense, and maybe I will end with kind of a quote, and I do want to do that, by Patrick Wolf, who's, uh, for those of you who know the name, um, settler colonial scholar based in Australia, unfortunately passed away um, two years ago and really a great loss to our ability to understand this phenomena of settler colonialism. And I'm quoting him, the incompleteness of racial domination is the trace and the achievement of resistance, a space of hope, end of quote. And the emergence of movements inside Palestine and outside of Palestine that, again quoting um, now Franz Fanon, into movements that would not accept anything but calling into question the colonial condition and racial privilege and racial domination is a space for hope, not only for Palestinian, Palestine, Israel, but more generally, as history have told us, to the struggles of the many uh, oppressed people in the world. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Thank you, Lana. Thank you, Anthony. I know we are running out of time, but I want to ask Meredith if we can take a couple of questions. Yes. So, because I'm sure there are. We have a microphone here. Yes. So, one, two, and three. Yes. Three questions. Yes. Hello. My question is why the Israeli mainstream has been going more to the right in the last few years. What are the real reasons for that? And a related question is, is there discussion really in the Israeli uh, mainstream on the impact of BDS and its momentum and future? Do they see that threat? Is that, does it have an impact, a positive impact or has negative impact? What, what do you think about that? Thank you. Yes, we collect uh, three questions, uh, and uh, then we... I, I visited uh, Israel and talked to Jeff Halper, and I saw the um, Holocaust Museum in, um, in uh, Tel Aviv, and then uh, visited Auschwitz and saw what happened from the German point of view. And it struck me the parallels, if you go from sort of Kristallnacht to the just before they started burning people, that the, that the uh, sort of creation of, of um, the apartheid state or the separateness of Palestinians and uh, Israelis is almost the way the Jews were treated in Germany. To what extent do you think that that, that parallel is justified and, and why has it not been more used in the uh, debates, if you like, by the uh, Palestinian advocates? Um, my question is, so Hamas in the last month has released a new charter and they said that they are now open to aspirations for another unity government. Do you think this is just a facade and or do you think this will actually bring about any form of unity that you've talked about in this seminar? Thank you. Thank you. We can start with this. Um, very, very briefly, and obviously three of us can make a few comments. Um, I would love there to be more unity between Hamas and the PA for nothing else than actually would bring some kind of uh, better life to both Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. It's been talked about for years, hasn't really gone anywhere. I'm pretty sceptical, but I hope it's different this time. And Hamas, I think, has also announced, in fact, that they want to possibly dissolve their government and move to elections. That'd be nice, because they haven't had elections for over 10 years. So that'd be great. In the Israeli press, there is a lot of talk about BDS, and there's a lot of fear about BDS. I think often people who read the Israeli press internationally think that what's in Haaretz is what most Israelis think. Haaretz is the, probably the most popular international Israeli newspaper, which is the most, still liberal Zionist, but most liberal of Israeli newspapers. And they cover the issue fairly well. Most of the Israeli press, both in English, particularly in Hebrew, of course, is pretty right-wing. Um, the occupation doesn't really exist. The territories are only reported on as a security story. Um, Israeli Jews aren't allowed to go into Gaza, so Gaza is essentially a black hole in terms of coverage. 
Um, there is still a securitization mindset that exists in much of the Israeli press, that unhealthy relationship between the Israeli military and the journalists there is unlike anywhere else I've ever seen in the world. If you ask why has the Israeli population mostly moved to the right, uh, briefly, I think, one, a lot of the world's moved to the right in the last 10 or so years in many countries. Secondly, the so-called left view in Israel has been seen to not have succeeded. I mean, there was a so-called peace process which went nowhere for the reasons Mark explained. And there's also no price to be paid for building more settlements. Like, if you don't pay a price, if you don't pay a price in your life politically, financially, you can still travel, you can still live your life happily. You and I might say, well, why aren't you paying a price morally for what's happening? And what's happening is a moral outrage. But in terms of your day-to-day -day life, although poverty in Israel is very high, in fact, Israel has one of the most unequal societies in the Western world. Israel is not necessarily a capitalist dream for everybody, far from it. So I think there is that. But overall, I think a lot of Israeli Jews don't think much about the occupation. It doesn't really exist, which is, speaks volumes about why I think without outside pressure, this issue is never going to end. Um, I think I'll address the question about the Israeli left or why the Israeli public has gone more right. Um, because the left that existed in Israel was left that was committed to the Zionist project in very, very strong ways. And when 2000 occurred, Palestinians disappointed them. <laughs> and this disappointment of how come they turn our gestures have turned into a particular process of turning to the right. The, the, the line between being a liberal Zionist and being a right wing is a line that is crossed easily. Once you are committed to the logic that there should be a Jewish state that grounds particular privilege privilege of access to resources, citizenship, etc. If you accept that logic, turning to the right is, is a logical move. It is just a continuation. But there was something good that happened with this shift to the right, and that is the emergence of real left in Israel. Very small, but anti-Zionist left that is committed to projects of decolonization. Uh, and, and that is the people that you see in, in Nabi Saleh and the Space for Hope. Um, <clears throat> the first thing I'm going to do is just because we've been using the word race, and this might confuse people because ostensibly this is not about race. I mean, the whole idea of her, like Zionism equals racism, the famous UN resolution. And the problem is, what most people don't realize is that when, we t when race under international law does not mean what people think it means when they just say race. Race is a category, a legal category, that also means um, ethnicity, it means religion, it's basically different kinds of groups and access to rights. So when we say that this is a racist project, a racialization, we say, but, but no, there are no black people there, or there are, but it's not what it's about, so why are you using racism, or how can Zionism be racism, et cetera. Et cetera. Legally, according to international law, which is what matters here, it is. 
because that's how international law has chosen to define all these kinds of exclusive, uh, exclusivisms and, and institutionalized bigotry. So that's why we use the term race and why it actually is the appropriate term. Um, I would say again, also as, Nana, as both of them said, Israel hasn't moved to the right, it's always been the right. The idea of a liberal Zionist is an impossibility. It's like saying you're a liberal racist. You, you can't be both. It, it's, in America, it's like a liberal racist. You can't do it, you gotta choose. What do you wanna be? If you wanna be progressive, if you wanna actually be liberal, then you can't support a government that denies full rights to people based on their belonging to a certain social category, race, ethnicity, sexuality, whatever. It doesn't matter which one it is. And, and so the whole idea of liberal Zionism was always a lie. I'll just give you one quick example. Once it was 95, 96, I'm, I'm going with a friend who's with Peace Now. Um, he's renting an apartment from the head of Peace Now, one of the heads of Peace Now. And they go to show us the apartment. It's in Abu Tur in Jerusalem, which is a mixed neighborhood uh, in Jerusalem. And, and as we get off the elevator to the apartment, there's an Arab family going into their house, clearly a Palestinian family. And he says to us in Hebrew, ah, yeah, it's a nice family, too bad it's next door to Arabs. Looking at him like, what the hell? You're, the head of, you're just like one of the heads of peace now. How can you, how can you be so racist? But in his mind, um, you know, this was not racist, this is just the way it is. Yeah, peace with Arabs and actually thinking Arabs are good people that you want to have anything to do with, two utterly different things. And it was right then I said, oh, we're, we're screwed. I mean, if this is peace now, then, you know, what's peace later? Like, you know, um, but this is the way it is, and that's why it's a lie. You can't be liberal and exclusivist, and Zionism is a really existing phenomenon, never mind, you know, Einstein or Ahadam or whatever. The real existing Zionism has been based as an exclusivist nationalist movement, which by definition means it's racist according to international law. So you have to choose. However, and this is what the gentleman who's asking about, you know, Nazism or why don't you cause, why don't, you, why don't people say that? Because there is a difference, thankfully, until now. Uh, Nazism ultimately becomes a genocidal project. And by genocidal, I mean genocide according to international law, which is the physical destruction of a, of a significant share of a population. It's not ethnic cleansing. It's a very specific thing as of now under international law. Zionism, whatever you want to call it or accuse it of, it has not tried to kill the vast majority of Palestinians yet. It's tried to ethnically cleanse them and, and that is a crime against humanity. It's many other things, but it's not genocidal as genocide has been understood by international law. So to say that Israel is like the Nazis I mean, it's just, it's not right. You could say, well, but Israel's like the Nazis before 36 or something. Okay, but then why would you even bother saying that? Because before 36 or 39, then the Nazis were like a lot of other colonial racist regimes, America or whatever. So I just think to, to, once you start saying Israel's like the Nazis, if, if you're not trying to make an argument that it's engaged in, in genocide as genocide is accepted, in international law, then there's no point making, using that. There's plenty of other reference, South Africa, for example. It's clearly like the South African regime. And why you can't use that, I, you know, people say, well, you can't call Israel an apartheid state because it's not about race. Again, look at the international covenant against apartheid. Look at the international covenant against racism. The way they define these categories 
Israel is clearly guilty of violating them. So what we need to do, I think, and one way to help build resistance is to educate people and say, look, if you don't like that we're saying Israel is an apartheid state, first thing you should do is read the, read the International Covenant. And then tell me, if it's not apartheid, what is it? Because according to the laws the way they are, it is engaging in this behavior which is covered by these covenants, which when you engage in it, you're breaking. You're not just violating international law, you're committing a crime against humanity. That's what apartheid is defined as. Therefore, Israel is a regime, a government that routinely engages in crimes against humanity. If you don't like it, then fight to change it. Don't deny it, because it's impossible to deny it anymore. Now, now close to an end, and uh, I, I really like to uh, underline this link that you all uh, made between uh, uh, resistance as a place for hope uh, and uh, resistance as a space to create a new identity, because I think it applies, it goes beyond Palestine and Israel. Uh, uh, it uh, applies certainly to Egypt, and it applies certainly to many of the um, many of the Arab countries which in these days uh, are experiencing uh, a counter-revolutionary moment. Uh, and uh, so it's really, it's really important that, uh, and that we continue to nourish hope uh, even from uh, far away because this is what you know, creates uh, a space for, um, for an alternative. And uh, I, we are, tonight we've been talking a lot about settler colonialism and actually among the many research interests of uh, uh, Mark, there is uh, there are indigenous movements uh, and uh, creative activism among indigenous movements. So I found appropriate uh, to invite our colleague uh, uh, Vicky Grease, uh, uh, who is a historian in uh, this university, and she works uh, on settler colonial societies and indigenous knowledges. And uh, she is uh, uh, am I from the mid north coast of New South Wales. Uh, to join us for, to give a few words and closing the event tonight. And I really would like to thank her for accepting our invitation to join us. Thank you, Vicky. Uh, thank you so much for the opportunity to uh, mention the situation for Aboriginal people in Australia in the context of this particular event. Um, and as many of you are aware, uh, the circumstances for Aboriginal people are not so far removed from those of the Palestinian people. And I wanted to say thank you so much, Professor Levine. It's been wonderful to hear you speak tonight about the ways in which we can imagine alternative futures and indeed the, the real importance of doing that. And of course, Aboriginal people in Australia are engaged with, with uh, doing just that same thing. Um, I wanted to say uh, that um, uh, I've had um, more decades than I care to tell you working in Aboriginal affairs across this country and, I, and wherever I've gone, I know that Aboriginal people have a huge amount of uh, empathy and a, a huge amount of interest in the plight of the Palestinian people, as Aboriginal people in Australia have for Indigenous peoples around the world. And of course, uh, there's, um, there's an idea that in fact, we as, uh, as human beings in the world are all diminished when people are existing under such uh, terrifying and genocidal regimes. 
as um, Aboriginal people in Australia are, uh, admittedly in uh, a, a different kind of complexity to that that our Palestinian people are, are living under, but genocidal just the same. And of course, uh, one of the things that we share with the people of Palestine is the fact that um, as uh, a people, we are a kind of a part of an, an anomalous uh, situation in the modern world, where after World War II, there was a huge shift to decolonization. And a lot of countries that had been colonized under the, you know, what we consider the old European you know, enlightenment uh, takeover of indigenous people's country, were able to find freedom and self-governance uh, in uh, and post-colonial situations. Uh, however, uh, the, the Palestinian people found themselves back right in it and in a new complex way that was, must have been absolutely devastating because all of the powers that were... Um, in the world at that time were in agreement about this uh, situation for Palestinian people. Uh, can I say too that I'm aware that at that point there was some talk about the northwest of Australia, the Kimberley, becoming the new Israeli state in the world? Um, well, I guess the Kimberley now has a very small population and in fact is one of the last surviving great savannas of the world. Um, so there's, um, there's something to be said for that. Uh, however, uh, the situation for Aboriginal people in Australia post-World War II in this environment of decolonisation is, is also anomalous in a way. Um, South Africa did not decolonise until much later the problem we've got is that at less than 3% of the population, we have to find other ways to decolonise. We have to, in fact, imagine different futures. And I think the example that Professor Levine gave about people um, finding commonality in struggle uh, is particularly relevant to us in Australia. We're so grateful for the allies we've got and, and the, the sort of forging, if you like, of new alliances, hopefully for a new state apparatus in Australia that will um, be predicated on the rights of Indigenous people. The other thing that I'd like to say about the, uh, the, the commonality we have is that we're, we're, we're facing the full brunt of the new neoliberal regimes and the... Um, the increasing pressure on Indigenous people around the world for scarce resources, water, minerals, so on and so forth, whereby Indigenous peoples are having to galvanise and defend country in ways that were never even imagined even probably 20 years ago. Another similarity is that these walls that are being built around the world um, I believe, are being built by the same multinational corporation that now imprisons more Aboriginal people than ever before. We have a, a, an industry growing out of the Im imprisonment of Indigenous peoples around the world and, and, the, and the building of walls to keep people out. Uh, uh, just finally, 
I want to um, echo some of the remarks of all the distinguished speakers here tonight and to say that the future is what we make it. The, um, and it, it is forged in struggle. It's forged in new alliances and it's forged in, in the resilience of people in, in their quest for freedom. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.